0: But um, before we get started, I do want to just say that, you know, this is one of my favorite weeks and favorite holidays of the year. I love the, the day that we celebrate the, the most amazing breakup letter of all time. I am, um, I love that, that treason is the reason for the season. <laughs> and one thing that, that I've said, I don't know why y'all are laughing. I'm like, I'm, like, I'm getting emotional up here. I'm, this is a a good day. I, you know, I, I know that you've heard me say it before, but um, you know, we get to celebrate 247 years and uh, also the, the reality that the two types of countries in this world are those that use the metric system and those that have been to the moon. <laughs> so with that, um, I do want to offer you a little bit of a, of a public service announcement, if I could. Uh, a, a PSA, I'm told that these are called. Uh, most of the, the sciencing that I'm aware of um, is uh, from uh, Bruce Willis movies. And I don't know why you're laughing. I'm trying to do a public service announcement. You can't laugh at this. Uh, but uh, we know from Armageddon that, uh, that, that what we, we, we want to be careful with our, our celebrations. Don't close your fist over your firework this year. Keep it, keep an open hand. Open hand in all things is a good, actually good discipleship deal, right? But, but don't close your fist or you'll be having your wife open your ketchup bottles for the rest of your life. This is something we can thank Bruce Willis for teaching us um, because I did see a meme uh, my daughter showed me the other day that uh, said that this, this weekend for some, for some Americans is the last weekend that they will have all 10 fingers. And so for those, it's, it, it's actually, you know, it's true and sad and awesome, um, but as we celebrate the day that, that Russell Case flew up to the aliens and, um, and really gave us another reason to celebrate Independence Day, just do it safely, um, Russell Case is an American hero, and so with that, uh, isn't it interesting that even in Independence Day, in that movie, they needed the Marines to come and save, uh, save America, right? That's right. Okay. Maybe... We have a sermon to do, too, so I could talk about America for a long time. I think Patrick Henry and I would be pretty tight, but um, getting back to business here. Uh, We are in the fourth week of our Summer of Heroes. Oh, Russell Case, it fits. But we are using Hebrews 11 uh, to travel through the history of God's people uh, and, and God's people participating with him in his plan, and we're seeing faith in him result From that participation that he invites us into, last week with Noah and Abraham, we saw two men partner with God's vision, and today we're going to see two people demonstrate that regardless of what we do in that participation, God is faithful to His vision. This is one of those things that you've you've heard it said often. We are not a perfect work; we are perfecting works, and so one of the problems that we get into, one of one of the traps of church, can be that after you make a decision for Jesus, you got to be perfect, and you can screw it up, and you can somehow lose it. We see a couple of people today that that step into God's vision, and they don't get it right all the time, and then they try to help God, and God doesn't need our help, and we see that kind of come out. What we're going to see from these examples is that faith is the lone requirement for the promise of salvation We're going to see that eternal life is not a product of personal achievement. It's not the product of working out a formula. It's a product of participating with God in his unfolding plan of reconciliation. So this is both encouraging. It's also kind of daunting. The daunting part, for me, is coming to realize what it means to participate with God. The change The sacrifice. The encouraging part is that it's been daunting for everyone throughout all of history. But today we have the story of Sarah and the story of Isaac. Two examples of participation that can encourage our own participation. One that I'm actually really excited to give, talking about Sarah. We begin together in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11. It was by faith that even Sarah was able to have a child. Though she was barren and was too old, she believed that God would keep his promise. And so a whole nation came from this one man who was as good as dead, a nation with so many people that like the stars in the sky, the sand on the seashore, there is no way to count them. How Sarah is presented often, I think, says a lot about the the one that is giving the presentation. Now, there are are many teachers, commentators, exhorters that that question and, and scoff at Sarah's inclusion in this list of heroes of the faith. Sarah often is presented through her failings. Something that our culture is really good at doing to each other as well but sarah often is presented as uh, as somebody that that failed somebody that that attempted to help god in in really crazy ways something somebody that, that was so uh, needing of 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 something that, that she tried to force this creation um, that she she was a failure with these failings the teachers then lead to a warning about letting God be God and about trusting God rather than seeing how her journey with God and her journey with the dude that she was married to can give us encouragement in our own journeys. Now, it'd also be tragic for Christian men to think that the actions of this woman doesn't have anything to teach us Sarah's story is not meant to be an example only for Christian women to be more Christian womany. She is an historic example of what Jesus meant when he would teach thousands of years after her life. In Mark chapter 8, verse 34 and 35, then calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, if any of you, wants to be my follower you must give up your own way take up your cross and follow me if you try to hang on to your life you lose it but if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news you will save it i believe that sarah is the the preeminent example of this verse in the old testament of all of those that we see in the old testament sarah exemplifies this the best if we as men cannot learn from and find encouragement in the story of Sarah, we are missing a loving gift from the Father that helps us understand our own story. Sarah's story is entwined to a certain degree with the story of Abraham. And that makes sense because they were married, right? Um, so we're going to see him reemerge, Even though we touched on his life last week as a hero of faith, we're going to see him come back a little bit. But this entanglement, natural because they were married, it also reveals the first part of Sarah's story that exemplifies her heroic status. Now, Sarah's name when we first meet her is Sarai. Sarai is a word that means princess. She is aptly named princess, uh, because in the ancient sense, she really was a princess. She was the daughter of a wealthy, powerful Chaldean uh, tribesman, a Bedouin named Terah. Now, according to scripture, she was also drop-dead gorgeous. I'm paraphrasing, but that's really what it means. (laughs) So the image of princess really can be seen in fullness here. She's wealthy. Her her father is is wealthy and powerful. She's gorgeous. Her name means princess. This princess was was married to Abram whose name at this time meant exalted father. And Abram presented Sarai with some problems. It's weird to think that a husband might present a wife with problems, but Abram certainly did. Uh, first, Abram had been called by God in Genesis 12 to leave his home, leave his wealth, and leave his protection, the protection that, was that the wealth, but also his extended family provided him. Leave your wealth and your protection. Leave your future of comfort to go into a land that God would show him. God said this to Abram. It was left to Abram to inform his wife, the princess, of this. Now, at this point, it would be foolish for us to take our culture and embed it into the story, right? The the idea that, that she had a choice to follow it, it, is, is different. Uh, from our, our view of modern relationships and her a- ancient Near East reality, there's a difference here. She doesn't have the same choices that would be available today. Uh, she may not have had that, that modern um, choice in the matter or, or a vote or a say, but still, even without that, she went with Abram. She left all of that comfort and followed Abram. That in and of itself is a huge step of faith. She left wealth, comfort, security, all of these things that our culture holds so dear. She left all of that for an existence of wandering from place to place, living in tents, and surviving off of what the land could sustain and produce. This is not a very princess-ish existence that she stepped into. All she had to go on, all that she had to sustain, all that she had to encourage, was the promise that God had made to Abram, a promise that she heard secondhand from Abram. Now, while this is a demonstration of faith, it's not the demonstration that the writer of Hebrews 11 is celebrating. Already, she's demonstrating A right to be included. But the reason that she's included is this. The heroic faith relates to how God intends to fulfill the covenant that he made with Abram, a plan that we see unfold in Genesis 17, 18, and 21. God tells Abram that that Sarai will have a son, and and telling Abram that Sarai is going to have a son is absolutely ridiculous. Sarai, the princess, she holds all of the cultural feminine virtue, except for one. She is unable to have kids. She's barren in a culture that defines womanhood by childbearing because childbearing is the mode and mechanism for community survival. This creates the workforce. My, my kids love hearing that. It creates the workforce, but also it creates the defense force of the community. It's a vital thread to the fabric of community, and and the route towards esteem for women was through childbearing. The route towards esteem was childbearing, and Sarai was barren. She was ridiculed for this. Even though she was sort of the, the, the matriarch of this wandering Uh, village that was going around uh, the the area as Abram was looking for this land that God was pointing him to, uh, she was ridiculed. She was made fun of. She was looked down upon. So struggling with her brokenness, aware that this covenant that, that God made with Abram is only possible if he's able to have a son, she attempts to control the situation. You ever try to control a situation? She knew the promise of God. She knew the covenant that he made with Abram. She knew that it was predicated on on his having a son. She did not want to be the reason that the covenant would be unfulfilled. You think about how much I can be like Sarai, not wanting to be the reason for a group to fail. Not wanting to be the reason things aren't accomplished. Sarah, I was faced with one of the greatest mysteries of life in this, one that we're faced with as well. How can God love me so much that he would provide? And that's really the crux of this issue. Understanding God's love. And at this point, Sarai is struggling with understanding it. Thinking about what it would mean for her to be the reason of a covenant failure. Thinking about what it would say about her and her weakness not being able to support the community. Having a self-focus rather than a community focus, rather than focusing on God. She's in this place of not understanding God's love and not understanding that that love would lead to provision. Faith, though, is a seed that grows as relationship grows. The more we know, the more data we have, the more faith can bloom, and and it's fed by relational knowledge. All of this is predicated on how well we know that with which we put our faith. She knew thus far that God had done what he said that he would do. They're still alive, even though they're not quite into this land that they were were promised. Even though God had done everything up to this point, this seemed like it was too big for God. There are several times where we are, are faced with this as well, where something looks like it's too big for God. It certainly is too big for me. It's too big for me to see beyond. It's too big for God. You put that alongside with her reality that she had decades of negative input from her community. Decades of snarking at her, behind her back, maybe to her face, maybe kind of like at an oblique angle, snarking at her for being barren. She had a faith issue, and she had a brokenness issue. Struggling with her brokenness and this mystery of God's love, she tries to control the situation by finding a solution for God. Faith often follows an act that demonstrates a deficit of faith, right? At least it's true for me, is that, that faith follows after I do something really stupid to try to do something really smart, And then God comes and saves me. This is what happens for Sarah. With all of this weight bearing down, this weight of the covenant bearing down on her, Sarai hatched a plan to help God out and save herself from from humiliating failure. She convinces Abram to sleep with her servant, and this story is captured in Genesis 16. This is what it says. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had not been able to bear children for him. But she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, The Lord has prevented me from having children. Go and sleep with my servant. Perhaps I can have, uh, I can have children through her. And Abram agreed with Sarai's proposal. So Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, Hagar, the Egyptian servant, and gave her to Abram as a wife. This happened ten years after Abram had settled in the land of Canaan. So Abram had sexual relations with, with Hagar, and she became pregnant. But when Hagar knew she was pregnant, she began to treat her mistress Sarai with contempt. Then Sarai said to Abram, this is all your fault. I put my servant into your arms, and now that she's pregnant, she treats me with contempt. The Lord will show who's wrong, you or me. There's so much here that we could unpack. Dr. Robert O'Toole, an author and biblical scholar from the previous century, points out that the biblical stories of the matriarchs follow a literary paradigm where a legitimate wife is paired with with a a rival co-wife who possesses certain characteristics that the other lacks. And what what happens then, what, what results from this is competition, The competition and jealousy between the two um, have destructive consequences. They have destructive consequences of the patriarchal and polygamous society where the narratives are played out. In other words, chaos because of a lack of order. I would submit to you that two wives is a lack of order. Both sides represent incomplete humanity, incomplete womanhood, shadowy reflections of the other. And we see that with Hagar and Sarai. Because of the asymmetry of both entities, the, the two women are, are locked in conflict, they, and they stay in conflict until one can expel the other. So... Again, in other words, chaos. Chaos being the lack of order. When Sarai attempts to bring the promises of God into reality with her own efforts, chaos reigns. When I attempt to bring the promises of God into realization through my own efforts, chaos reigns. Some of you know that some of you have felt my chaos. I'm glad I didn't hear any amens. I see Brad back there. He's, yep, that's true. (laughs) So Sarai attempts to bring the promises of God through her own action. Chaos results. And also with this chaos, we see the lack of blessing. God doesn't bless the effort. God does not bless the effort of Sarai trying to bring about the covenant on her own. What would come from this need for control could be perhaps history's greatest conflict as I- Ishmael, the son that, that Hagar has, would father the line that would, that would create the Islamic religion. The enmity between the followers of Islam and the, nature, and the nation of Israel come from the chaos of Sarai, trying to do God's work for him. The implications of this act on world history are huge. Maybe the biggest historical conflict between two peoples comes from this act. And Sarai did this. So God had a vision. Sarai had some trust issues. Sarai tried to bring the, the, this Uh, This covenant, this promise into effect on her own, and in so doing, she creates the biggest conflict in the history of the world. So obviously, she is now outside of God's love. Obviously, there's no hope for her. Obviously, God needs somebody else to do his work, right? Obviously, she has demonstrated an unworthiness, and obviously, she needs to, to go to the dust heap of history. something that our culture would tell us. But not only do we see that not being the case, God doesn't even void His promise. He doesn't void His promise. He doesn't change who He's going to operate through. He demonstrates His faithfulness and His faithfulness has nothing to do with what Sarai did or failed to do. Genesis 17, 15 through 19. Then God said to Abraham, regarding Sarai, your wife, her name will no longer be Sarai. From now on, her name will be Sarah. And I will bless her and give you a son from her. Yes, I will bless her richly and she will become the mother of many nations. Kings of nations will be among her descendants. Then Abraham bowed down to the ground, but he laughed to himself in disbelief. How could I become a father at the age of 100, he thought, and how can Sarah have a baby when she is 90 years old? So Abraham said to God, May Ishmael live under your special blessing. In other words, transfer the covenant to the son I already have. But God replied, No. Sarah, your wife, will give birth to a son for you. You will name him Isaac, and I will confirm my covenant with him and his descendants as an everlasting covenant. So much here. Sarai becomes Sarah princess, becomes mother of nations. It's the word, that's what Sarah means, mother of nations. God changes Sarah's name in order to reflect her identity as a child of of the living God. He changes her name to break the power of a lie of identity that she needed to achieve in order for God to work in her life. Her change in name also marks her participation in the unfolding plan of God to reconcile the world back to himself. She didn't lose her place. In chapter 18 of Genesis, there's another instance of Abraham being told that Sarah would conceive. This time, Sarah overhears the prophecy and she joins Abraham in in scoffing and laughing, um, laughing at the ridiculous idea of a barren old woman actually having a son laughing at the idea that that God's love would actually cover her failing? In response to the the scoffing in chapter 18, God asks this, and this question, not only do we see it answered here, but it's a question that also can lead us to our dealing with God in ministry time later. Is there anything, too hard for the lord so easy to answer that question here now together it's different when we are faced with our brokenness and our and the mysteries of god but sarah's got some history behind her now her brokenness that led to past actions her awareness of god's faithfulness All of this together set the conditions for the the blossoming of her heroic faith. First, we see this in the scoffing. She's incredulous. Her human reaction to God's promise is to laugh. And I understand that because a lot of times when I think about what God has promised us, it does seem a little bit far-fetched. She laughs at this. To think that this could be reality for her, that she could live up to her name. This is just crazy. Next, her incredulousness passes into a dawning realization that God actually is going to do what he says that he's going to do. It begins to dawn on her that, that God doesn't lie, that God can't lie. However astonishing the promise that he makes is, it must be true. When this dawning realization chases doubt, we see faith begin to form. An ability to believe that truly nothing is impossible for God. Again, that sounds really good if you hear it on Caleb. It sounds like something that's probably, you know, like when we talk about it here. But are we able to take that reality into the time between the Sundays and apply it to our actions that we know that God is able to accomplish all? Nothing is impossible for God. That's something altogether different. William Barclay says it like this, men spend the greater part of their lives putting limitations on the power of God. Faith is the ability to lay hold on that grace which is sufficient for all things in such a way that the things which are humanly impossible become divinely possible. With God all things are possible and therefore the word impossible has no place in the vocabulary of the Christian and of the Christian church. That is a good place for an amen. So what Sarah is showing us, Sarah goes before us to demonstrate this. We don't have to find ourselves in the place of struggling with the idea of the impossibility of God's promises because she went ahead of us and demonstrated for us that what God promises, God will bring through. Amen. Amen. In Genesis 21, that promise is realized, Abraham and Sarah have Isaac, the descendant that would be the covenantal link between his father Abraham and his son Jacob, father of the nation of Israel. Now last week we saw how, how Isaac played an important role in testing Abraham's faith. We'll also see that, that Isaac himself is, is listed as a hero. We'll get to him in a moment. Um, but first, we see what Sarah leaves us with. This example. Not an example of failure, but an example of of hearing the impossibility of a promise of God and allowing the reality of God to work that out into faith and seeing that promise come true. She was asked this question, And she was asked this question for all of us. Is there anything too hard for the Lord our God? She's a hero of the faith because she demonstrated to us that nothing is impossible with God. And through her story, it rings more true than something we might hear on Caleb. So now Isaac Listed as a hero of the faith in Hebrews 11 with his mother and father. First, we see that Isaac inherited the same promise that God gave to Abraham. And in, in verse 20, uh, we, we see this. In Hebrews 11:20. 20, it says, By faith, it was by faith that Isaac promised blessings for the future to his sons, Jacob and Esau. That's it. So Isaac got drugged up a hill and almost killed by his dad. And then uh, he's, promised bless- he, he's he becomes that which will promise blessings onto his sons, and that's that. How the heck is this, a hero of the faith? This seems like Isaac plays a minor role in the narrative. But that's only if we apply non-biblical definitions of heroism to the story. The story of Isaac's life that begins in Genesis 21 flows in and out. Isaac is going to flow in and out of of Genesis from 21 until his death in Genesis 35. Not really the main character of any of the stories. Sometimes maybe he might share main character-ness of the stories, but he flows in and out of the narrative of what God is doing between Genesis 21 and 35. Most of his life And most of the actions that are recorded in Genesis are presented in terms of his relationship to another person. Either Abraham's son, Rachel's husband, or Jacob and Esau's father. As he lived the reality of his responsibility to others, he also lived the reality that he was a steward of of the covenant passed on to him from Abraham through him, to his son Jacob. This faith is demonstrated by patience and vision. It's also demonstrated by the fact that he could surrender to the reality that he wasn't the main character. Imagine what our culture would look like without main character syndrome. Hebrews eleven thirteen through 16 gives us a picture of this life that, that Isaac lived. All these people died still believing what God had promised them. This was his reality. He died still believing what God had promised him. They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it all from a distance and welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. Obviously, people who say such things are looking forward to a country they, they can call their own. If they had longed For the country they came from, they could have gone back. But they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared a city for them. Isaac lived as a stranger. He knew that permanent settlement was promised, but it would never be realized in his lifetime. He knew that his place in the story was to serve as a link between the promise and the fulfillment. Even with that reality, Isaac never lost his vision for the hope that would come with the covenant of God that was first made with Abraham. He had no idea how long the road would be. He had had no idea how long the timeline would extend from the promise made to the promise realized. He had no idea in spite of that, in spite of of what he would experience himself, he kept on marching towards the light of realized covenantal promise. Isaac is an example of heroic faith because he demonstrates another layer of something that we talked about last week when we talked about obedience. Last week we talked about how everything works best when it functions as it was designed, when we use it for what its purpose is. When God is the center of order, all of creation is placed in the designed form and function that was intended by God, and it works. Isaac takes stock of his surroundings. He takes stock of his life. He takes stock of all of his reality Isaac places God at the center of his order, and he sees himself as a participant rather than the purpose. Isaac is a participant rather than the purpose of God's plan. Isaac is aware that he is a part of the whole rather than being the whole. Isaac does not suffer from this main character syndrome that the infection of our culture that preaches selfishness. If Isaac was a center of order, if Isaac demanded... The things revolve around himself. He would not be able to take his place. He would not be able to take that place of participation because he knew he would never see the fulfillment. To our culture, that's not fair. That's not fair to Isaac. Certainly wouldn't be fair to me. If I've got to do the work, I should get the reward. Isaac should be able to get his. Isaac should be able to get his because I want to get mine. But the economy and ecology of God don't support this. When we place our faith in God, we don't get a sugar daddy. We get a father that will be faithful to his promise. We have to keep in mind, though, his promise is about bringing order to creation, not comfort to his children. The reward for Isaac's faith is pretty cool. And it demonstrates how long-term benefit is always better than short-term gain. What he gets in Hebrews 11 says that he found a heavenly homeland, an eternal life with God, and it also shows us what God says about Isaac. The father says, well well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. I want to be called your God. I want, think about the, the reversal of relationship that we see in this instead of, you're mine, I want people to know that I belong to you. That's pretty cool. So to step into faith is to step out of the center of order. To step into faith with the example of Isaac is to step into the reality that we are a part of the whole. We are a loved part of the whole. But our existence is a part of a community. Our existence is a part of a family. Our existence is a piece of the plan. A piece of a group that places God in his place as the center of order. Isaac receives the blessing of his father. He lives in this covenant with God and then he passes on that blessing to his son Jacob. In other words, he steps into the role that God has for him and he rests in the peace that comes from taking his place.